Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Yako Fanzel, who is a South African clinical psychologist who is recently, or a couple years ago, moved up to Ireland. And in this conversation, we talk about psychology and sociology and their interrelations, specifically with the victim culture that is promoted by critical social justice, aka wokeness, and how that is a replacement in the West of dignity culture and how the dynamics of guilt, repression, tolerance, and shame form a potent cocktail that's quite toxic for human flourishing, both on a personal and a social level. This is a wonderful, deep conversation. It really gets my gears a grind in in a good way, though we're talking about really deep personal things. It's also just really fun to tackle these human aspects of the so-called culture war. Yako is also the co-host of the Critical Therapy Antidote podcast. Critical Therapy Antidote is a group of professionals who are concerned about the encroachment of social justice ideology into the counseling profession. And if you are a professional and want to join that organization, or if you're just more interested in topics such as we cover today. Links are down there in the description. Without further ado, here is Yako Fansale. How you been? How was your summer? Um, we had the wettest July in recorded history. Oh, was that wettest. Fun? Huh. Yeah. So we didn't have much of a summer, apparently, but um, I actually enjoyed the summer very much. I don't know why it was different from, from last year's summer. Um, it's possibly just my experience of it. <laughs> Last year, we had just come over to Ireland. Many things were new. The adjustment was was still fresh and still a bit difficult. But this year has been different. I've really been appreciating the summer much more. Hmm. I've been out much more. Um, and I also started uh, a hobby, beekeeping, um, which is also... <laughs> Wow. <laughs> yeah, crazy. I know. Um, yeah, it's, it's possible to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm, my cousin's a beekeeper in South Africa on the um, KwaZulu Natal South Coast. Um, so she started, she actually introduced the idea in my mind, and I thought maybe I should just explore it. But in South Africa, it was difficult because we stayed in the city. And finding land or finding space to put your beehives can be quite difficult. Safety would be one of the one of the concerns. But here in Ireland, it's not a problem. So mm. one of our friends said they've open land. They 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 don't plant anything there because it's boggy and it's just there's just heather growing there. So I took up the offer and um, yeah, I decided to do the beekeeping. Uh, I guess they come in hives, right? So how many hives do you have? Two, only two. Two boxes, yeah. All right. Mm. And they go on a, they have, don't they hibernate during the winter? So they kind of just... They do, they do. But fortunately, here in Ireland, it doesn't get that cold. Mm. So we just feed them for 
say December, January, February, and then March when the gorse it's a it's a it's a spiny shrub with yellow flowers, about one and a half meter, two meters tall. Then when they start flowering, then hmm. the bees start looking looking after themselves again. You grew up in South Africa completely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's the what's the different feeling like? I guess this than the the climate or just the feeling of these two completely different places on the earth. Ireland. Um, the climate would be the one. Um, we are noticing a, a starker contrast in seasons. The colder oh. season would of the cooler season would would obviously be longer than the warmer season, and also the length of days, days and nights. Um, it's strange. For, you know, to us, to, to, to wake up early in the morning, say around four o'clock, and we see that it's already light, okay? But in South Africa, it you know, daybreak would be early as well. But sunset would be at the latest, say, seven o'clock, whereas here in the northern hemisphere, this far north, it would be around 10.30 p.m., which is still strange to us. Um, yeah, I have to actually look at a map. Well, yeah, because... the... mm-hmm. Because I always just imagine South Africa being roughly equivalent to Europe in uh, what latitude is it? Mm. No, no, it's it's so Europe where where we find ourselves. We're far we're farther north from. So the the the, the Cancer Tropic, the Tropic of Cancer, than yeah. than when we where, where we stayed in South Africa, yeah. removed from the Tropic of Capricorn. Yeah. Yeah. So we're farther okay. north than we were south. Yeah, I guess South Africa is a huge mm-hmm. amount of distance between you and the next body of land, the south, the mm-hmm. Antarctic, mm-hmm. right? That mystery and zone. There. Madagascar, maybe. Oh, yeah. Did you do a we lot of traveling tropical. through Africa? Or, I mean, that's such a huge continent. Yeah. No, not really. Um, Mozambique a bit. And we went to Zanzibar, but not really to the other Southern African countries. Hmm. We tra- travel quite a bit in South Africa itself. It's quite vast and quite diverse biomes and and geographies. So hmm. that's been about it. So in terms of climate, we, we recognize the difference. Uh, the wetness is a maybe a bit of a problem to some of the South Africans. I still, I like the wetness. I, maybe I still have this sentiment around rain being the blessing from above. Hmm. Um, and so from, from a climate perspective, that is what we find from a social perspective. It is, it is interesting to experience the safety, the openness, the freedom of movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, not being scared of being mugged, being attacked, not looking over your shoulder over the time, you know, all the time. Um, even when you're out in the open, out in the field, not being worried that someone might be hiding behind a bush, ambushing you, things like that. Yeah. So that is quite different here in Ireland. And I, I have found, though, that and this is understandable given the Irish history and given the functionality in the Irish society in terms of infrastructure, systems working, etc. That the Irish tend to be rather forgiving of the politicians. 
I'd rather, I'd rather, what shall I say, um, rather, rather trusting other politicians. Whereas in in South Africa, I think we have a greater suspicion to you know for our politicians. Um, again, given our history, older and more recent history, is that is that sustainable? Just the the instability on a socio uh, sociological level. Like everybody's just on in South Africa, pins and needles. Yeah, in South Africa, and I don't think so. No, you know what they're creating is again new type of intergenerational trauma, and I think we're going to see way more. What shall I call it? Um, explosions in terms of behavioral acting out in masses because of the the state of threat South African society finds itself in constantly. Mm. To what degree did that inform your move from South Africa? It did to a large extent. Uh, we stayed in a very nice place in a relatively safe area, but we gradually saw the encroachment um, into our neighborhood of criminal activity and I remember coming over to Ireland the first few months that I noticed how deep my sleep was hmm. while in South Africa we were alert all the time any sound whether it's a cat on the roof or a, a bird flying you know crashing into a window yeah. that would alert us and we wonder what the hell is going on um so yeah to to a large extent the safety and the deterioration of society informed our move which was painful i i have a fondness of you know towards south africa and of the people in south africa mm. hmm. my 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 background was was rather mixed in terms of my exposure to different to different even African people, the African nation, you know, tribes, I would say, the, the Bedi tribe in particular toward the north of South Africa. So that that is something else that I miss. I miss I miss the sound of, of African language here in, in Ireland. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot and of African food. <laughs> different foods, but the languages, there wasn't just a, like one or two dialects, but there was multiple um mm. languages. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Huh. And now you're just surrounded by English speakers. Irish English mm. speakers, though. At least. I, Irish English with an interesting accent. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting expressions. Yeah. Hmm. But I, I, I really enjoy it. I really, really enjoy it. Yeah. It's Ireland? a good country. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. Are you just saying that for the uh, immigration board to look back no. on? <laughs> no, I'm not like that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Not in the least. <laughs> you know, something that's been popping up uh, in my conversations lately, um, when somebody comes on my channel and we, we talk about their ex lived experience, and uh, especially around gender, uh, gender dysphoria, gender mm -hmm. distress, there ends up, if they go through a process of really deeply looking at themselves, they eventually see that there's some tra sort of trauma that's associated mm -hmm. with their gender confusion or gender difficulties or 
using gender to work through trauma in one way or another. And then one term that comes up increasingly is this, and I have a problem with psychology because it has all these terms that become things in themselves rather than descriptors, right? Um, Oh, yeah. Complex um, post-traumatic stress syndrome where you're under Mm. constant alert. Maybe you're hypothalamus. There's some sort of brain thing that can be measured uh, scientifically. Uh, What do you think about that complex post-traumatic stress disorder syndrome? Yeah, so we have this understanding in psychology that if trauma doesn't get processed sufficiently and in time, it gets generalized. So generalized trauma um, goes and sits in your body and well, obviously it goes sits in your body as a reflection of what's happening in the brain that those you know the, as the source of control over those body parts. So the idea of complex PTSD sounds interesting. I think there is validity and it's 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 it can be quite a helpful idea. There has also been a proposal that borderline personality disorder and its similarities to complex PTSD might suggest or might indicate that borderline personality disorder could be just complex PTSD. Although there are some researchers who say that, no, 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 there are sufficient distinctions between the two syndromes or the two presentations, Hmm. be that as it may. I think it can be helpful. My problem is not necessarily with the idea of complex PTSD. My problem is around this whole society of psychological obsession that everything is traumatic these days. You don't you don't hear that people went through a period of severe discomfort. They went to, through a period of trauma. I'll move here to Ireland. I described it as adjustment. Some people might describe it as traumatic. And it's got something to do with the removal of one of the the the, the, the criteria of PTSD from the from the DSM from DSM four to DSM five. One of the criteria was where where a, where a person experienced or had an experience where they perceived a threat or imminent threat to their state of survival. Now, a threat of, a st- of, of their state of survival, th- th- a threat to their life, is no longer a criterion for PTSD. That has been removed. And that opened up this, this, this possibility of describing anything that was quite difficult or you know, ex- extended, uh, required the person to extend or exert themselves more fully to be considered as traumatic. Um, and I think it has also it's got something to do with the development within our society from what the sociologists Campbell and Manning described from a dignity society to a victimhood society hmm. where the the fragility of the individual is assumed and people relate to the individual from a state of 
fragility with that assumption of bias that the individual is fragile, the individual is more vulnerable than we imagine they are. And I think this that just enhanced this this narrative and this discourse of trauma, of suffering, and even slight pieces of discomfort could be considered traumatic. Mm-hmm. Mm. The there's a uh, I was working with uh, some youth. I had a child labor camp going on because I was making some cider, so mm-hmm. we, we did, employed some boys mm-hmm. cutting apples and juicing the apples, and uh, the boy got child labor. Yeah, child labor, and he, one of the boys uh, cut his finger, and uh, we wrapped it, we bandaged it up, and then he's like, it's still stinging, it's still stinging, he was wondering if there's anything in the apples that's making it sting, and, and he's like, it's just stinging, it's stinging, it's stinging, and the other boy's like, well, you're cut, of course it's going to sting, and, and then I mm. came up with the, you know, the manly thing to say in that situation is, pain is the weakness leaving your body, you know. That you know, the, kind of the, the daddy thing. It's like this is character building. This isn't trauma. It that way. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This is like this is you overcoming something. This is your challenge. Mm. This is your hurdle. Mm. Um, mm. And uh, being spending a lot of time in uh, preschool as a preschool teacher, um, you know, you come in with kind of a more manly ish or a masculine way of looking at pain, looking at trauma, looking at like hurt. Uh, mm-hmm as opposed to a more feminine or more care oriented, I'm going to care. I'm going to yeah. hug you. I'm going to hold you. I'm mm. going to lift you up. Like, mm. I'm like, well, it's your pain. If I impose my body on your body by hugging you, like I, you're, mm. I'm distracting you from the pain. When, if you just yeah. confront the pain and look through the pain and say, yeah, I am in pain. That's my pain. And the pain's going to go away. I, and it kind of establishes a sense of resilience in the kid but at the same time the critical the criticism of that method that masculine method is that you're you're detached from it you're not allowing the kid to cry or you're you know bottling up their emotions you're not letting them like go through and experience this thing by saying okay we're playing frisbee we're not playing crying right now you didn't get the frisbee try harder you know kind of thing yeah so that is the distinction between what we psychologists again with our psychobabble referred to as the maternal function versus the paternal function. The maternal function is holding, it's nurturing, it's cuddling, it's coddling, it's affirming, mirroring. So the maternal function suggests there is excess, there is fusion, there is relief. That's the maternal function. Hmm. The paternal function is a bit different. It's challenging, it's interpreting, it's confronting you with reality. It's encouraging you to exert yourself, to put your skills on the line. That's the paternal function. The paradox is the paternal function is necessary so that the child can experience the perpetual presence of the internal uh, mother. Think about it this way, if for, for, for that child to be, to be strong and resilient enough to carry themselves through discomfort, they need to have an internal belief that they're able to nurture themselves. And for them to do that, they need to put that to the test. They need to be placed in a state of paternal discomfort so that they can reach into internal available resources and hopefully find the Mm. internalized mother 
that would carry them, nurturing them through the state of distress and exertion. Mm. But if, if, if that doesn't happen, it's almost as if the child never gets the opportunity to generate and to, to, to take the initiative to bring forth the internal nurturer while enduring discomfort. I want to kind of try to take a leap. So help me out here mm. or, or just let me uh, dangle myself over the cliff and fall to my imminent uh, foolish demise. But no, if we're, if, if we're living in a more and more, as opposed, okay, so there's the dignity culture. I know there's an honor culture, but you were talking about like the victim culture versus the dignity culture. I'm wondering if the victim culture is uh, kind of like the toxic mother kind of where there's no chance yeah. for you to um, say, no, I, I can take care of myself. Everybody's always victimizing each other. They're always coddling yes. each other. So yes. it forms a network of always having to be inside. And that's where you have, mm -hmm. this is the, the creaky part. This is where you have more and more group activity, more and more collectivism and, and identitarianism mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. everybody has mm -hmm. to be in a group. So we just kind of mm -hmm. form these groups and then fused. we start to, yeah, we're fused. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, mm -hmm. and then I just, I'm wondering, cause I know that you're really interested in authoritarianism and certain aspects of, uh, group thanks, censorship, that kind of thing. If you have a victim culture where everybody needs to be constantly coddled and protected, mm -hmm. then they're always going to be inside. And then they're always fighting for a group. They're not fighting for themselves. They're fighting on behalf of themselves, right? Which works in a dem democratic demographic kind of way. So if you, mm -hmm. in order for, if society is going to be a, a democracy, then it has to have these movements that are always like, voting one way or making a choice in this other way. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm laying out a, a broader map going from the personal psychological to the, the, the broader kind of sociological level. And if that's some of the yeah. things that you're seeing, um, then insofar as you are concerned about, you know, pop culture or the culture war or whatever like that, if there's like psychological aspects to it that, that are the path forward towards, making the world a little less insane. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You're asking what the path forward is? Um, I just, yeah, this is where I'm dangling a bunch of, I just like right. threw a bunch of things for you. Mm. Okay. Yeah, so um, I referred to the, the victim culture from the dignity culture because the West has been built around the concept of dignity that the individual that the individual has internal 
dignity and no matter what the person might be called what the person with with you know around gossip being disrespected etc there is this internal or this is this there's this bias in our culture that a person has internal dignity you can treat the person badly they're still a dignified human being that the the the, the treatment doesn't necessarily define their worth change their yeah define their worth in severe cases of reputation violation there are institutions available to remedy that in 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 serious and severe cases whereas in an honor culture even small slights would induce violent or uh, violent re- retaliation from their side with a with a with a victimhood culture even small slights would induce the person complaining and seeking help from these larger institutions to fight their battle for them ends this issue around misgendering for instance where a person could be uh, i don't know fired from work or they could be dragged in front of a a court or a magistrate because of because of a small slight the person didn't acknowledge the other person as you know the way they wanted to be to be acknowledged so um so those just to clarify so dignity honor and mm-hmm. victimhood um cultures so called mm-hmm. are different forms of reputation management um honor mm-hmm. and victimhood culture are very linked in that there's a really tight policing of slight reputation management like a constant yes. enforcement of That's slight it. reputation and honor culture is either you yourself or your you know, i guess your your clan your immediate family maybe your brother yeah. or your father if mm-hmm. you're a woman enacts mm-hmm. the restitution of uh reputation on behalf of yeah. or in, enforces that that line in a dignity culture there's more wiggle room yes we we don't there's like more, sticks we, and stones may break my bones but reputation damage really doesn't hurt me because i'm bigger right. and better than that kind of thing yeah that is also why this 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 woke trend didn't really catch on in traditional dignity cultures like in the middle east japan um in china those mm-hmm. areas because those sorry in honor cultures those are honor cultures and it is unthinkable it's unthinkable that you would use victimhood status as a means to gain reputation never never okay. yeah you would use achievement and reputation and uh, you know those types of things that to to, to gain reputation but victimhood never okay. it's too shameful but then why and why would a dignity culture slide into a victimhood culture what's the hack it's a gradual thing um and i've been thinking about this myself but it, it's 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 a gradual thing this thing developed over several decades plenty of factors played into this development and i think some of those factors included things like the the prosperity in the west the redundancy of strong men hmm the hmm people could afford to call their parents or to to to, 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 to I, I say around the 80s, I noticed it, and I, really, it's just anecdotal. 
but South Africa were on uh, on the there was a lag between what America produced and what eventually ended up in South Africa. Late eighties, early nineties, <clears throat> heavy censorship was suspended. So the flow of different types of media productions increased into South Africa. And I noticed this tendency of a, of a, of a, of a generation I like to call, uh, I will cuss one time on your channel, the fuck you mom generation. Oh, okay. And that wasn't, that, that's new in South Africa. That, that was new back then. But that was, it appeared to me that it was quite popular and prominent and even could you just yeah, define in, that? Because is that like your mom is so fat that she needs to No, your own parents, where where you just zap your own parents, or you're just defiant of your own parents and you do your own thing, and your okay. parents would just tolerate such such behavior. That is anathema in within the South African culture of of, of all different ethnicities in South Africa. Okay. It was something I noticed. And if you think about it, it's now late eighties, early nineties. It's a generation and a half later. So, so, so those people would have grown up with this idea of of defiance of authority. That authority is not really necessary. That you can zap that authority and just be what you want, and not really appreciate what previous generations have accomplished the prosperity that you're now enjoying. And I think it has something to do with society becoming a too good mother. Um, Providing. One of my favorite articles, I, I will explain that to you now. So one of my favorite articles, in, it was written in 1996 already, is an article by uh, a person called Juliet Hopkins, I think the dangers and deprivations of too good mothering. And I'm using that as almost as a metaphor of what's what's been happening in the West. And in this article, she goes into some of the theory of a, a, a Freudian, a post-Freudian psychoanalyst called Donald Winnicott. And Donald Winnicott has this concept of good enough mothering. So it's a mother that is consistent enough but fails from time to time. So the infant experiences the failure of mother, but manages to but, but manages to repair that break in fusion. And paradoxically, that creates within the infant an appreciation for mother because the, 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 the infant has experienced temporary loss of her. Yeah. And it also creates hope in the infant that even though they may they, they, that they may be too aggressive towards mom or that they may be, may be too angry towards mom or maybe even too envious of mom, that, that, she, that, that the infant can still repair that. So the guilt within an infant raised by, two, by, by a good enough mother is reparative guilt. In a neglectful mother, that isn't possible because the mother isn't consistent enough such that the infant can internalize the presence of a persistent or, 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 or an all, all, always present mother. Um, and such an infant grows up to, uh, to be very paranoid, many times even uh, uh, psychotic, and in other times even antisocial. What is also bad is when the mother is too good 
where the infant d does not get in contact or or does not experience and survive adequate periods regularly enough periods of frustration where the infant just assumes that mom is always there that my needs predominate some of those infants don't even seem to have an awareness of their needs and they grow up entitled they cannot handle mistakes it's almost as if they 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 are being attacked they go into a paranoid state of of dread because they never had the experience of repairing that temporary break and fusion between themselves and the mother and i get the impression that society because they became the society became so prosperous and could tolerate so much Hmm. misdemeanor from infants or from 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 this newer generations but those generations have never really experienced loss of that prosperity such that they have adequate appreciation for that and i think hannah arendt actually mentioned that a free people it is impossible for a free people to imagine even to imagine life under a dictatorship it is impossible and i get that i can see that even from a south african perspective it is impossible to imagine 20 years ago that the country would deteriorate to that extent it was just not possible in our minds hmm. so to it to a, to this generation with several other prosperous generations before them there's no other world that possibly exists than the prosperous one and those that do exist are far away it's 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 purely imaginary it's never experienced and because it's not experienced it doesn't register register either as true or as possible i think because of this we see this emergence of entitlement narcissism this lack of appreciation of of their of their heritage finding hmm. the the object or the target of their projecting of their of their dissatisfaction in the culture or in the society that actually made this prosperity possible mm-hmm. and i mean an infant encounters frustrations not only because of temporary or you know from time to time failures from mom but also due to existence there are some existential frustrations too and we see in this the, these more recent generations that they even want to resent their society for existential frustrations such as being born in the wrong body that's a classical example of that even biology is wrong mm-hmm. they depict um adolescence as maybe this this child might go through the wrong adolescence imagine that so adequate decentering adequate appreciation of the other as necessary to your own existence mm-hmm. hasn't adequately uh, hasn't happened to many individuals of of this of this generation so 
they 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 remain narcissistically narcissistically centered within themselves and everything else must be the source of their discomfort but hardly ever themselves mm-hmm. um, and i think something else that accelerated this 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 scourge of narcissism was social media not only social media but also the existence of a virtual world because a virtual world opens up virtual possibilities i mean you just gave an example of a of a, of a boy who cut their finger <clears throat> um you cannot experience that in the virtual world you know that's part of the problem they think that because something is possible in the virtual world it's got to be possible in reality these people these children grew up with technology from a very very young age so their their world view and their their being in the world mm-hmm. is significantly different from those of us who grew up pre-internet um if society doesn't collapse upon itself one way or another and uh there's uh if there we keep electricity going and we keep some sort of food going uh and the internet doesn't just disappear the internet will remain and people will mm. grow up within the internet there will be mm. entire cultures generations upon generations that interface more through the internet than through any other uh, avenue uh, than going to the market i mean any everything's mm. getting more and more set up to like we're basically mm. in this kind of spaceship like where everybody's got like their little capsule you know um Mm. so being in the conversations that i've been in people bring up the internet the internet's like what's this culture war like what was the what are the kids these days the internet the internet the internet you know the internet's the problem blah 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 i'm like well maybe we're just going through growing pains maybe culture maybe human beings will adapt we're incredibly adaptive i mean we live anywhere from cape town to siberia you know mm. uh yeah we, we can populate any given thing and our cultures kind of reflect our uh the environment that we're in uh, even even like our mating like w- how we perceive of and regulate the sexual function you know sexual desire is you know, it's adorned in different ways across cultures and i'm sure that that has to do in part with just the the land that these cultures live in and the animals that are around them and stuff like that. So I'm wondering if you, if you think about pain as being necessary and necessary for growth Mm -hmm. and if there will be, uh, forms of resilience that, uh, that create strong men or strong resilient characters maybe in the internet, uh, if that will, And and you see that if if you kind of just look at these different websites and how they they operate, Tumblr I think is done now. But there's these kind of Tumblr girls and 4chan boys, and 4chan has mm. this really crass way of just memeing the heck out of everything, and it's very mm. sardonic, very you know, very removed, and they, they kind of run towards like offensive language, and it's kind of a cover for other kinds of thoughts. And then there's the Tumblrinas who are very they're always policing each other's language, and there's all these games that they play, you know, and it's kind of they're mm. they're mm using they're using this this zone this internet to actually express and and develop 
feelings. And then there's just these really weird kind of phenomena where you have like these really nihilistic men, you have these incels, you have porn addiction over here. And -hmm. then you have these highly self-obsessed women with like addiction to uh, eating disorders. Mm -hmm. And then you have the gender thing where they kind of all like end up, you have the transmaxing boys and then the ROGD girls, like starting to use this gender thing to, uh, deal with their disconnection from the world. I'm throwing, again, I'm throwing a lot out there. Yeah. So no, I don't, I don't consider internet to be a bad thing. I don't consider social media to be a bad thing. Just as I don't consider sugar to be a bad thing. We know because of the excessive availability of food that people will use food to ex to, to, to excess and they will develop certain health conditions that will unnecessarily make them suffer okay and what what what's what's necessary is not necessarily uh, what's necessary is not to ban sugar necessarily of the what, what is necessary is to 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 get people to use their agency better and that is to introduce to deliberately and intentionally introduce greater scarcity even though it is available Hmm. That is with food, that's with internet, that's with sex, that is with social media, greater agency. The problem with this is the way people respond to unnecessary and artificially induced diseases, such as diseases associated with obesity obesity and bad diets. Instead, many times, instead of reducing or, or, or managing people their, their, their diets, they would reactively go for, say, bariatric surgery while continuingly, while continuing with a bad diet. The same with things like internet use and, and the, the, the bad consequences, especially to, to, to youngsters around social media use. Instead of reducing the access to certain social media platforms and and and, in, and internet platforms, instead parents send these youngsters to psychotherapists to to cover up to undo the damage. While back home they continue doing the damage to themselves. Yeah. So it is. So 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 the response there is is reactive as opposed to. As opposed, to, as opposed to restructuring of their lifestyle, mm-hmm. and people are rich enough to do that. That is where Herbert Marcuse's got got a. He had a point when he said, "Technologically, society is so prosperous that we can afford to indulge. We can afford to indulge sexually." In terms of our diets, in terms of our what we enjoy, leisure, laziness, we can indulge much, much more because society can afford the damage that 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 would would come from such lifestyles. We're seeing that yeah. it's wasteful, nevertheless. It's unnecessarily suffering, nevertheless. So I think there will be a response. Like you said, there, there, there have been voices speaking out, especially uh, on alternative media, of how to respond to excess, excess p- 
porn, excess sex, excess social media, excess sugar, bad diets. And the response is to introduce, intentionally introduce scarcity. And hopefully, and hopefully that will, that will take off. I have to smile on your face. Bring this up because um, mm -hmm. artificially introduced scarcity is uh, something that we see coming down from those who suppose they are at the top of the pecking order, like the WEF, Klaus Schwab, um, uh, you know these uh, these cabals up in the heights, saying we're going to we're going to you know with climate crisis we're going to introduce scarcity, we're going to introduce uh, we're going to put mm -hmm. carbon emissions, we're going to we're going to give you a uh, social credit score if you if you burn too much carbon then you won't be able to you know buy food you know and because we're going to regulate it and they're thinking more it seems like they're thinking more in terms of the planet rather than the individual right you'll you'll own mm -hmm. nothing and be happy well there's this there's this weird i'm just you're triggering me because like the artificially mm. introduced scarcity if you don't do it for yourself somebody else is going to do it for you or if you're so reliant on these systems of prosperity and the people who uh gain control of them, begin to push the levers, you know, uh, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's a good thing for them to watch your back and tell you what you can can't eat. I think what I'm referring to is not necessarily this guilt-induced uh, encouragement to introduce scarcity. That's what I'm referring to. I'm referring to a realization that because of this excess, we have diseases of excess. And for your own good, you need to reduce some of the exposure to what is excessive. I think what they are doing is they're, they're really exploiting the conscience of the West to introduce totalitarianism or their dictatorship. And that is, that is very smart of them to do that, because that is the weakness of the West, is our, is our conscience. I, I, I just hope that people see through that soon enough. That's different from what, 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 what we are talking about. Yeah. What I'm talking about in introducing artificially or intentionally introducing restrictions or scarcity is for self-enhancement. What, they, what they're doing is introducing artificial scarcity, not necessarily for self-enhancement. That will really debilitate societal growth. Mm-hmm. I think there is a bit of a nuanced, nuanced difference between the two. Yeah, yeah. I just had to point, exploit that. <laughs> gotcha, yeah. But these uh, people are good with that. Hey, they they they're very very good. They take, they they take what is socially regarded as honourable and dignified, and they smuggle something perverse in along with it. They use hard earned values built over centuries as a vector to smuggle in what is perverse huh. and we know that in with, with concepts like diversity or plurality or, yeah. or tolerance or you know the usual stuff anti-racism it's so, so strange sometimes when i listen to even some psychoanalysts speaking about societal stuff and they say we fully support the idea of anti-racism like oh which anti-racism are you referring to? You can't be that naive. You've got to know that there are two types of anti-racism. The anti-racism that says what it is, we're opposed to racism. There's this perverse, corrupt concept 
of dystopian anti-racism doctrine. Please don't tell me you're referring to that too. Please don't tell me you're not aware of that type of anti-racism. So. You mentioned earlier when you were discussing Winnicott about um, attachment styles with the mother or detachment mm -hmm. styles uh, and going through that process of development and having a, you know, the Goldilocks mom just right. Um, mm. Not too soft, not too hard. Um, mm. <laughs> and you, you mentioned that you mentioned this term called guilt. And um, I want to, I want to explore that with you. I'm going to tell a brief story about when I was at the Evergreen State College and I was taking one of these DEI um, trainings before I knew that's what it was. It was just like this really creepy indoctrination training. And we were told to uh, discuss our privilege, how we're privileged and how we're not privileged. And everybody would go around, you know, in these small groups and like say, well, I'm privileged in this way. I'm not privileged in that in this other way. So we can see that everybody has a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And we're, we're all over the plot, but I just didn't want to play the game. I didn't want to play the game. And I was with the person who was giving the seminar, you know, the, the work the leader of the seminar ended up in my group and she was the DEI coordinator before it was called the DEI coordinator. They had kept on changing their terms of this office of indoctrination over the course of, of my time at Evergreen. They keep on changing it now, you know, eventually they discovered this word called equity, which was just this great word. Um, mm. But before they discovered equity, it was like multicultural and it was all these other kind of, you know, Buzzwords. Mishmash, buzzwords. Mm -hmm. But it's just like, it's just buzzwords all the way down. But she, she's like, well, why, why don't you think this way? I'm like, she's like, this is just a thought experiment, you know? But I'm, I'm like, I don't think in terms of what I have and what I don't have. That's poison. <laughs> That's poison to me. Like I teach, I spent all this time teaching kids not to think about, you know, like how, how, how many crumbs does this guy get from the pie more than I, you know, like that hair splitting, you have to get over that or else you're, you're focused on the pie and you, you lose out on life or you just eat the pie, you eat angry pie. Cause like you don't even enjoy the pie cause you're angry. Um, or, mm -hmm. or you're, you have victory pie where you're not even tasting the pie. Cause like, I got more of the pie. Um, mm. and I realized later on when I was deprogramming myself by doing reporting on evergreen and seeing where mm -hmm. it went and i knew it was going to go there and it they mm -hmm. proved me kind of right intuitively and then i went through and i had to talk about it i realized that i resisted playing that game with discussing my privilege and my underprivilege or the opposite of privilege because i didn't want to hand them my guilt like i i'm i'm before god like god is my judge God is my judge. I'm not going to yeah. hand over my guilt and my shame to other people because then they can manipulate me. And I saw that. I saw that, especially with the white people. Um, they would speak and they would go along with the anti-racist stuff and they would constantly apologize, you know, or they would say like, there's this great book on this and I'm sorry, it's a white guy that wrote this, but it's a really good book about this thing. Like they're, they're mm -hmm. always sorry. They're always mm -hmm. mewling. And so when the event mm -hmm. happened, they were completely susceptible to mind control. And like, they were just, they just became autonomous, uh, automatons or just like cyborgs just yeah. getting, you know, like you sit in the back, you go get water. Like you're the white people, you're the servile class now. Um, mm. And so I, I saw that one of my resistances to that, um, to being caught up in that mind virus is that I wouldn't give them my guilt. Something about my guilt is very, very personal to me. And I think that's a lever by which I'm controlled. And I need to feel guilty mm -hmm. about the, you know, the bomb on the street, you know, to help, to be uh, mm -hmm. incentivized to be a good person. I need a sense mm -hmm. of, of guilt. And in order to restrain mm -hmm. my own um, lusts and hungers, I need to have a sense of shame too. Like this is a social regulatory mm -hmm. mechanism mm -hmm. that leads me to the path of a dignified life. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm just opening yeah. up 
that because yes. um, we like to run from guilt, but I think it's a very, very powerful thing, and we need to be aware of oh, what it is. And absolutely. Have I mean, guilt can build character. Guilt is, 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 is such a helpful uh, vector in embracing yourself and in encouraging yourself to be better with your warts and all. It is it is it is such a valuable it's such a valuable uh, property in our in our in our psychology. And Freud wasn't that fond of guilt, wasn't that fond of shame t t either. So, but Melanie Klein Klein came along and she distinguished between condemnatory guilt, paranoid guilt, in other words, that could just condemn and destroy. There's no reparation and restitution from that in that experience of guilt. And that is super ego type guilt. It's harsh. And then she distinguished that from reparatory guilt, where there's hope, where there is forgiveness and embrace. And that is what's lacking in this new discourse around race and privilege. And even when, when I grew up, it was so, it's, it's so strange. You know, we used to pray, thank you. Um, how do we say that in, in, in Afrikaans? Thank you for all our privileges. Thank you for all our privileges. Thank you for all our privileges. And it was said in a state of gratitude and of appreciation. We appreciated that we had privileges, we had advantages. And because of that, we can also be generous. And that is the, the, that, that is the secret to gratitude. People who are grateful are also generous because they have this bias. Mm -hmm. And the bias is that they have excess, they have too much, they have more than enough. And because of this experience of having too much, they tend to be rather generous. A person who's envious lives in an internal state of poverty and, and impoverishment. That's why someone who's envious, even though they have a lot, they're still stingy and ungrateful and resentful. It's a state of mind. But again, it is interesting how this word privilege, that in, that, that, a decade or two or three ago was used to to induce a, a, a sense of gratitude and 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 generosity it's just pivoted into into this discourse of resentment <clears throat> so I, I, I wrote a few things down here as you were talking like that <laughs> and again melanie klein elaborated a lot around envy versus gratitude i can go into that a bit uh, a bit later and induced shame altruism okay so let me let me let me do that then so the formulation of envy so let's go back to the infant so the infant is very very young they're in a state of of split <clears throat> where they can only appreciate things as all good or all bad and when things are all bad they have this persecutory guilt this 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 anxious distress that's just out to destroy them and when mother appears or when mother appears in in, in good timing there's the all good breast and it is it provides an excess and the the baby just engulfs the breast but as the baby grows up, he realizes 
that the bad mom and the good mom is actually the same person. And the aggression they had toward this mother was aggression towards the same mother that's also good. And that creates intense ambivalence. And with it came or comes a sense of intense guilt. And sometimes that guilt feels too overwhelming. And they need to defend against that guilt. And when the breast they previously des uh, destroyed then offers them milk, they cannot fully appreciate that milk because that is the milk and that is the breast they earlier on used to resent when it was when it came too late. And they realized that this is mother. Mother has, has, has excess. I am dependent on, on, on mother. <clears throat> Why can't I be the one being self-sufficient? And that is where the envy then starts, realizing that mom has something that baby desires. And in response to that, within the envious dynamic, we destroy what, or the baby destroys what mom has so that neither of, it, of, of them have it. What and do you mean by destroy? What, what do you mean by destroy? You see the aggression. You see the engulfing. With the, when, when the baby attacks that breast, you see that engulfing. And the, the lack of appreciation that even though they hate this breast, now they need to be dependent upon this breast, feeding them the milk they need. And this is, look, at this is inferred from infant observation, from our perspective. Um, but when mom persists and, she, and when she does not retaliate, and when she forgives and when baby notices, even though I wanted to destroy and even though I defended against this condemnatory guilt, there is repair. The baby can more fully take in and appreciate the milk and the forgiveness with it. And that creates hope and that creates gratitude. And with it, the 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 sufficient mother gets internalized with mm. it the gratitude and with it the sense of generosity. When that does not happen, the baby goes through life unthankful, resistant, distant, devaluing, defensive, narcissistic, destructive, and the guilt, the condemnatory guilt that they could not carry, they project into the other. That is why envious people, resentful people, projects guilt into the other, and others identify with that guilt. That's called projective identification. When you catch the thing, they project into you, and that becomes problematic. Could you give an example of that? I will do that now. Does that be, am I too dark? I can't see myself. Oh, that's good. Much better? Okay. An example of this. So, someone who's perpetually victimized, always empathic, always super compassionate, 
runs the risk of having disowned their own aggression. So what do they do? They seek out companions who tend to be sadistic so that they project their own internal sadism or their own aggression into the other, someone who's prone to, prone to sadism and, and aggression, aggression might identify with that which the victim projected into them. And a sadomasochistic relationship might start to develop. And that is why we find things like Stockholm Syndrome, where there's so much identification with a perpetrator that the eternally compassionate victim engages in this strange symbiotic relationship with the punisher on the on, on the other hand and that almost keeps that relationship alive <laughs> or someone who's envious who's resentful what are they trying to do they try to tell you that their suffering has a source and somehow you're part you're, you're part of the reason for their suffering what do they induce in you they induce guilt in you so that you can do something about their suffering the trick is you can stand on your head until the cows come home. You will never provide sufficient uh, reparations, um, sustenance, reparations, yeah. feeding to the envious to the envious victim, such that, such that they would become satisfied. And that is this whole trick around wokeism. You should never catch the guilt, no matter what. Don't catch that guilt. It is sadistic. It is envious. And they can play the, 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 the virtue card. They can abuse, like I said, values and use values that have been built over centuries against you. Don't fall for it. You are being duped. They're smuggling in their own perverse agendas, unconscious agendas to catch you out with. Don't do it. And isn't it interesting that as with this primitive, primal, destructive envy that we see in seriously disordered individuals, we see exactly the same with this whole woke movement, and that no reparation is ever possible. It is, it is, it is, it is captured in their ideology. Mm -hmm. The other day I posted something on Twitter, and I said... There are quite a few philosophies in the world that are actually just philosophical sophistications of very primal defenses or very primal operations. Marxism is, a, is a, and even the, 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 the modern forms, the woke form of Marxism, is a philosophical sophistication of deep, destructive, primal envy. The idea around Queer theory is a philosophical sophistication of deep, engulfing um, um, uh, perversion. I wanted another ad adjective. Di uh, what's, uh, what's the word? You get the, the impression. That is, that, that is to, to, to indulge, indulging pervers perversion. It is just sophistication of, of, of deep primal defenses. And we have quite a few around. 
Um, I would say Christianity is a theophilosophical sophistication of reparative guilt. So, yeah. Reparative and, guilt to uh, brought to the highest possible uh, station, right? It's like a yeah, you live by principle. With existence by itself, with existence not just society in society, with yourself. History. Right. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a set of values that have been built around our awareness of our proclivity to do what is wrong, that sometimes we damage not only ourselves but also others, okay. but that yeah. there is hope to repair. And just to just to restate what you're doing or what you were talking about with this observation of the baby and the breast and mm -hmm. uh, the narrative that that's developed around just watching this, mommy, where are you? Why did you leave me? You come back and now you're mm -hmm. like, why, you are the source of my suffering. Um, and then in that little moment, like, well, I need you, but I hate you. And so there's maybe this like a bite, um, mm -hmm. bite down on mm -hmm. that. And then the mother sustains a sense yes. of and talks and explains i understand and coos, it must have yeah. been very difficult yeah, yeah. and and then the uh, and then the baby feels a sense guilty because guilty. i just now like, bit mom yes i hurt her yeah i hurt her but there's forgiveness that's okay my baby it's okay you don't have to feel guilty mommy is here i understand mommy's here. yeah right? yeah I understand. I understand yeah it, that's really interesting. So, um, mm. because earlier in the conversation, we were talking about a society that, that's overmothering. Yeah. And, you know, I, there was something else. This is kind of, I think it's related, but my brain's just going all over the place um, mm -hmm. because of what we're talking about. We're talking about really primal things, but it, I was just thinking about how in our society, in America, what we've decided was the place where we could escape from self-restraint into pure tolerance of anything was this month. Well, it started as a day and then a week weekend mm. and then a week and then a month mm. and then a season of pride and, and mm. pride became this, this celebration put, of indecency. What lust you, you see gluttony, you see lust in there, you see mm. greed because all the corporations go there too. It's mm. like this complete bacchanalia. Like mm -hmm. we're, we're just like, and it's through it. It's intimately uh, linked somehow to sexuality it was sexuality that provided cover mm -hmm. for all these things to go. And, 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 and it's like sexuality linked to pride and sexuality is, was linked to shame and to guilt and to privacy. Right. It wasn't just like, yes. a, you know, and, and trying to like be okay with whoever you are, or whatever you're into, you know, was, was kind of one way of dealing with that. Um, Mm. privately but then it became it just spilled out into the hole mm. where, where we just did and it's also there's one little thing where where you see well where why are white people not where's white pride because we're not supposed to have white pride no. but oh, you see wow. that in in the rainbow it, it's hidden in the rainbow it's like this this european um like look at how uh, look at how uh, look at how rich we are as a country that we can just give ourselves over to mm. Uh, celebration of uh, of complete wastrel. Just what we can just spend and spend yes. and spend. And Wasteful. And it's because it. it's because we're yeah. so prosperous as as liberal uh, in our liberal. Yes, yes. Corner of the world. Again, the the bias, the idea that society is like this 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 mother, this mother that 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 has an excess that's that's uh, inexhaustible. 
in the milk that she provides. No society can tolerate, can, can, can survive this. No society. It's, it's too bad. And there is this 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 shifting of goalposts all the time, like you said. Like you said, I mean, in the seventies, in the seventies, when 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 there were pride parades, etc., you still see you still see the decency. People are still proud. There, 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 there's respect. There's not this in, indulgence and this this ugly and this shamelessness and this indecency. I mean, some of the videos I saw, there were even nudists parading around. Some of them even having semi-hard-ons in front of children, twerking in front of children. There's no shame. There's no restraint. That is a depiction of Herbert Marcuse's unrepressed society, Herbert Marcuse's utopia. That should give us an idea of what it must look like. There's no shame. And no society, society can survive that. You know, it is, when, when it looking... Is, it is super wasteful. Sorry, yeah? No. Uh, you look at people asking, how do we walk this back? And, you know, there's this whole talk about um, mm -hmm. a pendulum swinging or some sort of backlash um, that might or might not... But, but a lot of people don't want a backlash. They don't want, like, an authoritarian hard right. We're going to clean everything up. Uh, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna batten everything no. down. We're going to enforce conformity to a very particular rule. We're going to march step through this. We're going to clean up the streets. And on one level, that might be what cleans it up. Um, but the cost of that is the loss of personal conscience um, and personal yeah, liberty. No, that's um, not the solution. So, so I don't think this is a, necessarily the centrist point of view or the classical liberal point of view, but like a, there's a psychological, I think there's a psychological and a spiritual or even theological or like a marriage of psychology and theology about values and meaning and where they come mm -hmm. from and what they serve. What, what does, how does the individual interact with society and how is the how is society incentivizing through tolerance and all this other great language that's wrapped in virtue the destruction and the wasting of the individual and itself and how does society or how do how do people within society right the individual in a right society where there is a demand but not too much of a demand right mm. there's a demand for conformity to a certain set of values but mm. not too much yeah. You mentioned something earlier about the about the father and the paternal function. <clears throat> mm. I just had a thought there now. So yes, one of the, the one of the dangers of this Marcusean world is the compensatory backlash or the overcorrection towards the far right to towards a, a totalitarian regime it is a danger just because we can't imagine it doesn't mean it's not possible it is possible um oh yes this is what i wanted to say so the 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 the, the problem we're sitting with is this that even with people's lifestyles when they encounter the consequences of their lifestyles they don't see it as a consequence of their lifestyles they see it as environmental failure 
is the strangest thing again. Hmm. And I'm going to use this as, a, as an example. And like I said, I'm a psychologist and I observe people and I listen to what they say. And that gives me insight into how they think. I have attended a funeral of someone who died of a venereal disease. And when I see people's response to that tragedy, and when I see, when I, when I listen to how they speak, it is almost as if the existence of such a disease was the injustice. It wasn't because of lapses in judgment, bad behavioral choices that led to a person acquiring that disease that eventually led to their dying. And this is the problem with the zeitgeist we find ourselves in and the specific brand of Marxism we're dealing with. That bad consequences never come never come from the person themselves. It's always from the society failing them. It is that is how infantilizing it is. Hmm. And many and, and so and society will continue doing that because it's so easy. It is it is the envious state. Society failed me. I am the victim. Remember, I am idealized. I can't do anything wrong. I couldn't. I couldn't tolerate imagining all this responsibility and accountability over my over my behavior, over my failures, because I'm too narcissistic. It's got to be someone else's fault. The thing is, they will run into reality whether they like it or not. The paternal function will be there. Restriction, consequence, bad consequence will be there. Some will be slow learners. Some won't learn at all. Others will. We're not, we're not, we, look, the mob may be stupid, and many times humans have proven, proven themselves to, to, to not always be that intelligent, but we are not that stupid. Many of us will realize that these are, these are consequences to your own behavior, to living according to values that are not conducive to, conducive to flourishing. We need to do something about it. Societies will start, or communities will start collapsing. Some, some, some communities will be turned into what I've heard Californian cities are being turned into. And some mm -hmm. South African towns and cities are being, are being turned and neighborhoods are being turned into. Because certain things just couldn't, shouldn't be tolerated. And hopefully, hopefully, hmm. there will be a groundswell of sufficiently cohesive communities and eventually a society that will communicate a better set of values, a set of values that has a better cause and effect narrative, a set of values that is rooted in history, a set of values that is, that is sufficiently uh, um, saturated in gratitude and appreciation, sufficient sufficient occasion of celebration of expressing that uh, expressing that gratitude, such that people would find that society, those communities, 
more appealing than the indecent, perverse, ugly we see among the woke. There's, uh, there's a great example of what you're talking about, about these values that were created over generations and then being used to smuggle in mm. corruption at that funeral where mm -hmm. I could see it, where that adage or that phrase, you know, the Christian phrase, hate the sin, love the sinner mm -hmm. has become hate the consequence, mm -hmm. excuse the behavior, excuse the chooser, mm -hmm. I guess, or something like, yeah, excuse the behavior, mm -hmm. hate the mm -hmm. consequence. It, it's the same formula, but it just yeah loses right. track of it's like compassion. the good and the true. It's like compassion. Yeah. Unbridled compassion. What's unbridled com compassion? It's not compassionate at all. You, 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 you imagine that you're compassionate. In your fantasy, you're being compassionate. Because in your fantasy, you're enjoying a utopia where there are no consequences to your behaviors. Where all suffering is just mm -hmm. bad and unfair. All restriction is just unfair. It's a deprivation of what, what you're entitled to. That's in fantasy. That's compassion in fantasy. In reality, that's not compassion. That's the perpetuation of suffering because of a refusal to integrate reality around you. A narcissistic and envious refusal to do that. Yeah. Um, remember I said earlier... Oh, no, I forgot it again. No, that's fine. So structure is necessary. And and to be, to be consistent in what you propose is also necessary. And I think alternative media has a, a wonderful opportunity to do, to do just that. I recently listened to a very, very good podcast where a person said, in, in those countries where great instability and bloody revolution took, took place. Three professions were central in bringing those about. And they were lawyers, academia, and media. Lawyers, academia, and media. Obviously politicians too, but I mean polit politicians enact laws and lawyers are just fine. media lawyers yeah it's true and, and and lawyers then impose those 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 corrupt laws and it is interesting to see that there is already alternative media being created in the west so there's no longer mon uh, monopoly on information distribution the only thing that needs to be created would have to be parallel alternative educational and academic academic institutions in terms of in terms of lawyers that is just fine at least the dissemination of information and the inculcation of information the you know from from me from um, academic institutions will produce a larger chunk of society that will have a say around legislation and hopefully that will eventually bring a turn in the tide it's already happening in britain but anyway mm -hmm. so what you're saying is that the or what you're proposing is that through better forms of media people will be connected or woken or come together or be uh incentivized or be given hope that alternative 
institutions are possible. Yes. And then the people who are able to create those institutions will begin to create them. And then the people who need want to go to them yeah. will find them. And the media plays the role of, of creating the narrative Absolutely. possibility. Yeah. And then through that, <laughs> over time, then you have a groundswell of uh, smart people. And through, through non-fascistic or non-direct um, conflict means, you will have an alternative elite. You'll have, a, uh, you'll, you'll have a better hill to die on, which doesn't really involve any bloody revolution. This isn't utopia, but I think it's better. We will still have to deal with hmm. the tragic triad of guilt, pain, and death. And the mm. sophisticated variants under those 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 categories. Just keep in mind, I said that reality will serve as the paternal function to many of these who are committed to disavow reality. And that means that many of those institutions will not survive. By necessity, they will not survive. It's not conducive to flourishing. And hopefully, hopefully they leave sufficient infrastructure behind so that those who have sufficient reality contact will then move in and repair what is left to be repaired and resurrect what still could be resurrected. But I don't think I don't think fighting or challenging or trying to reform those institutions from the inside out will be possible, not when you're dealing with envy. Look, you will provide them to their heart's delight with enough to destroy. So if people want to be if 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 if, if people want to be um masochistic and really commit to trying to change things around from the inside out, well, waste your time, waste your money. Uh they will love what you do. Because you're 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 saying there's there's saying that there is a psychologically toxic uh, program Absolutely. at work that is unable to be uh, stymied yeah. or stopped within, yeah. let's just say, academia, yeah. uh, colleges yeah. of education, maybe education itself. Maybe in, we talk about the United States, mm -hmm. the federal government, mm -hmm. uh, like the, the, the deep state, all that stuff. There's no reforming. There's chopping off the head and, and reformulating. There's disbanding and recreating or there's creating something parallel. Um, it's like being in, it's like the difference between going to counseling and getting a divorce. Like you don't think counseling, like there's, you can go in there and reform the marriage. Well, it, of course, of, of course it depends on the actual dynamics within that marriage, marriage. But in certain relationships, certain things have been committed that have been deal breaking issues. And within woke society, several deal-breaking issues have been committed, or deal-breaking mistakes have been committed. The, the, the mutilation of children is one of those. The deliberate disruption of society around racial lines, the instigation of tribalism, is one of those as well. Is repair possible? I think... This society that we're talking about, this alternative emerging community, communities and society has to have uh, 
we'll have to have a discussion around repair, about uh, around reconciliation. Um, I don't think condemnatory guilt will adequately solve societal ills. There's got to be there's got to be a discussion around reparation too. But I think by virtue of what these people have already committed, there is such an indictment upon them already that I don't think that they would even risk entering a negotiation or a possibility of repair knowing what they did. Hmm. Some of them have committed the lobotomy scandal of the 21st century. And the victims aren't adults, even vulnerable adults. The victims are children. They will double down. They're already doubling down. So yeah, complex issues. But but no no kind of no condemnation. But at the same time, I mean, you're not advocating for a millstone, and you're not advocating for no. the pillory. You think that reality will provide the yeah. Yeah, it, 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 that becomes a slippery slope. As soon as we become too punitive, yeah. that becomes a slippery slope. Yeah. Yeah. How this will how this will play out in reality? How the how the the, the nuance will 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 be reached where there is sufficient accountability, but not excessive punishment. I don't know how that will look. But as time goes by and as society wakes up, and I, I, I think, I think things are starting to happen slowly, but surely things are starting to happen. It's going to be slow. But as things progress, these discussions will have to be, will have to be had. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I... I think that's a fit. I want to get back to, I wanted to bring the conversation back around mm. to South Africa. Um, that's where we started. And, and I asked you, is this sustainable? And you, you mentioned, I, I don't know without some sort of group action. I don't know without some sort of really tough decisions at, at, at some point. I mean, South Africa is different than mm. the United States. I mean, you know, California, like, or whatever san francisco is like one little pocket and people can move away from there there's plenty of land out here (laughs) south africa like the the structure that that exists there governmentally and just the infrastructure itself is doesn't seem to have much left in it and once that goes then how are people going to band together and what lines are they going to draw and then what kind of are they, is it going to split up? Like, are people going to divide around racial lines? I mean, if they're singing "Kill the Boyer," Ooh. are the Boyers going to have to flee, or actually, mm. Boer? Pardon me. Are they going to have to flee? Are they going to have to stand their ground? What are they going to? What are they, no. they going to do? Like, it's they just... they, 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 all of them can't flee. It's just not possible. It's not possible for all of them to flee. Many of them don't want to flee because. They feel, and that is the right to feel that way, that they're entitled to the land they inherited. So I think there will be a separation of sorts taking place again. I 
I, I, I don't think, especially around the dominant narrative that's taking place in South Africa, it will be it will be different. It will be difficult to have confidence in political parties that they will that they will prevent this type of tribalism to escalate. It is just it's it's just been escalating like like it's nobody's business, and it is. I'm I'm I'm, I'm stunned by the tolerance of the singing of that song. It is so interesting. I followed not really followed the court case that was brought against that that leader. It was so interesting to hear that what the defense was. And again, as someone who studies psychology and, and, and mass psychology, I was it was interesting to hear how the defense that actually led to the uh, court verdict that it was not a commission of hate speech in psychological terms was precisely what we see um, happened in Rwanda and in Kosovo before genocides broke out. And that was this resurrection of what they call, Vamik Volkan calls it, a chosen trauma, where they latch on to, to historical trauma, they resurrect that historical trauma, they enact Mm-hmm. They enact protest against that historical trauma, but they but they project it onto those available now. So they might not. So 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 the recipients of their violence may not be the same people that lived decades ago who actually committed these these atrocities, but the new victims remind might be descendants or might just be remind reminders of the actual perpetrators in the past. And then by by enacting this historical this is this historical drama, they engage in a type of a revenge ritual. And that is precisely what ought to be condemned as dangerous. That is precisely what led to so many genocides in the past. And yet this was the argument that exonerated them exonerated this this leader that is just a struggle song it's not just a struggle song it's precisely because it's a struggle song and it involves an enemy and there is a clear representation of that enemy living today and he uses the language so many other uh, occasions of slitting the throat of so-called whiteness etc i mean they know exactly what they were doing and interestingly enough when you follow the comments of his followers on Twitter, you can see that the way that song registered with them was as a, an incitement to violence and revenge. Hmm. So, um, the outcome with the rate of deterioration and the momentum of deterioration I I don't think reconciliation uh, along racial lines will come anytime soon. I think it is at its lowest in in decades. I think separation in terms of cultural hubs will be necessary. I, it is it is protected under under the constitution. 
and hopefully some international support and awareness to 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 apply some international pressure maybe that will help yeah yeah the, the new york times has got your back i don't think so they they want to turn down the heat I don't right think so. don't not they? the new york times no they're still in denial <laughs> yeah crazy times crazy crazy times yeah so you run the podcast for critical therapy mm -hmm. antidote or antidote Me and Christine. Um, can you give you and hmm. Christine Stephen? Okay. Um, want to plug that? And then also what else you're working on? Are you writing a, like a great big book about <laughs> what we've been talking no. about? No, no, not yet. <clears throat> so, um, yes, the CTA podcast it is on Spotify and on YouTube. We discuss what you and I, <clears throat> what you and I have been discussing today, and we discuss it from various perspectives. Because we are both mental health practitioners, myself a clinical psychologist and Christine, a marriage and family therapist. The 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 flavor of our discussions are more psychological. We try to present it in as accessible language as possible. Christine helps helps a lot with that because I, I tend to, to veer off that uh, that that track a bit. <clears throat> but it's meant for the public. It is also meant for mental health pr practitioners themselves. There has been a void in terms of organizations. Uh, in terms of social arrangements where mental health practitioners can come together and discuss these concerns. So many just notice how things are going awry, but they have no way of discussing it, no way of of finding like-minded like people. And I think the CTA, the Critical Therapy Antidote, our website is uh, criticaltherapyantidote.org, and there we post also our podcasts, articles that we write. We have several contrib contributors. And those who would like to join are more than welcome. We only meet once a month. We have a speaker discussion. It's good to see everybody around. It's good to see, to hear what everybody, what everybody is working on. We also have uh, uh, a peer support group that, that we run from, from time to time where we can just process our own experiences in society, in practice, and the like. Um, yeah, it's a it's a very very helpful platform. And specifically, specifically in the wake of what is called critical yes. social justice or critical wokeness justice. and its right. infiltration mm -hmm. and imposition on the uh, right. counseling yeah. profession, broadly yes. speaking, all the all the different. Yeah. So, yeah, like you said, critical social justice in terms of its theoretical formulation, how it's applied, how it plays out in terms of race and sex and gender and gender identity, uh, identity and transgenderism and treatment, how, th uh, how, how therapy is supposed to be to be done as opposed to what they're proposing it should be done. So... Yes, there's a lot to cover. There's, there's, there's really a lot to cover. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what about your book? I'm not writing a book. You're a man of a certain I age. Know. You have to have a book. I know. You have Look, to. 
let me complete my adjustment moving to Ireland and I will start working on it. Oh, okay. I'm and your beekeeping. beekeeping okay. And yeah. All right. Yeah. I, I'm still running a practice as well. We need to, we need to keep the household afloat. So it's quite a lot. Oh, it's quite a lot to balance, but mm -hmm. we, somehow we manage. Well, thank you so much for, uh, giving me your time and, and, uh, let me pick your brain. And, uh, I mean, it felt like I want to have you on again, or maybe have you mm. and Christine or, uh, a number of other people on again. Cause I, I really like the, there's a political way of, of looking at this. There's a theoretical philosophical way of looking mm -hmm. at this. And there's also a psychological way of looking at this because there are dynamics. This, this, all these politics are running on the engine of yes. the human being and the human yes. psychology and, and understanding what, what healthy human beings well adjusted, what it is mm -hmm. to be well adjusted as an individual and what it is to be well adjusted as a society is a it's a holistic yeah. approach to seeing and evaluating whether any given theory is going to be a manifestation of our better natures or our yeah. demonic natures and psychology has the tools to yes. examine that thank you very much it was lovely my degree. goodness thank you i appreciate that awesome <laughs>